Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Okay. Hi, Dr. Cubitt. Hi, Katie. How's it going? I'm very good. How are you? Good. Well, welcome to our very first podcast episode. It's been a long time coming and I'm excited to, to get started. Me too. Um, so the, the, the thing that we're going to get started with, um, I'm really excited because we've never really gotten to know our nutrition experts um, on another level. We have our bios on the Stanley Forage website about you and uh, Dr. Duran, but we haven't really taken a chance uh, to uh, get to know you guys and your personal experiences with horses and livestock. And so I thought it would be fun to uh, interview you guys and we'll do Dr. Duran on another episode, but, uh, and get to get know you guys in a, a different way. So sounds fun. The, the neat thing is this, and we've also known each other for what, four years and we've never actually met in person, which I find we very interesting. Not. I know not even at a conference or anything, but, um, so I, I put together some questions that I thought would be interesting to get to get to know you and your experiences. So the first question that I wanted to ask you was, um, and I'm sure you probably saw this coming, but as someone who has lived in Australia and in the United States, um, what are some of the most interesting differences that you have noticed uh, between the two countries and just how things are done like in everyday living? That, that is a question that I get often. Um, you know, I was born in Australia and I moved to the States in 2001 on a scholarship to go to graduate school. So I was quite young when I moved here and I've actually now become an American citizen and have lived in America the same amount of time that I lived in Australia. Oh, wow. but as far as the big differences, when it, obviously I love Vegemite and it's hard to find Vegemite <laughs> here. And any of you that know what Vegemite are, are probably like screwing up your nose because most Americans hate it. I was going to say, I've delicious. heard a lot of Americans are like, what? That is so gross. It's delicious. <laughs> um, but when it comes to having horses, I think one of the biggest differences that I noticed was most people in Australia have their horses in their own backyard and boarding horses is not as common as it is here. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. So as, when I got into the nutrition field and started advising horse owners, that was a really different experience for me um, because horse owners have to, a lot of the times, go through a barn manager or somebody who is right. managing the barn in order to make decisions about their horse. So that's one of the big things as far as um, horse ownership differences. Yeah. Obviously, Australia is really big, and I grew up in Queensland where uh, it's quite dry. It's the northern part of Queensland. Okay. Um, it's quite dry, and I would associate it more to having horses in Southern California or in Texas. Okay. Um, hay is of shortage. There's really no pasture grass. Um, 
So you feed a lot of foragers to horses. That's their primary source of fiber intake. Uh, I now how, live in How Virginia. are the growing conditions there? I'm curious, like for hay. A lot of the hay will come from the southern part of Australia. Oh, um, okay. Where it is more temperate and there is rainfall, so uh, grass can be grown. Or it comes from areas where there is an abundance of water, so um, irrigation. Yeah. Um, kind of like in Idaho where you right. are irrigating the the, the forages. But um, so that, that's been a, a – was a big learning curve when I first came here. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and so you had mentioned, so you moved over when you were younger. Did You moved over when you came to go to school. Is that what you I was said? 21. Okay. And I'm an only child and I packed up my belongings and I moved over here and I arrived in August of 2001 and started graduate school at Virginia Tech. Graduate school. Ah, that is so cool. That's a big move to do. For me, I mean, most Australians, most people that are, uh, you know, teenagers, young adults in Australia, it's travel. Everybody travels. That's a yeah. pretty common thing. Um, and so for me, it to killed two birds with one stone. I got to travel and I knew that I uh, would need extracurricular, you know, more um, schooling mm-hmm. for the career that I wanted. I've always wanted to be. Uh, working with horses, working with animals. And I knew that I would need to um, go to graduate school in order to be able to pursue the career I wanted. So it gave me two, I got two things for one. Nice. So how did you initially get interested in horses in the first place? Um, Like how young were you when you got started with everything? I would say I don't remember how young I was. <laughs> that we young, lived huh? <laughs> in the middle of Australia. So my all my family, my mother's family is actually from New Zealand, and oh. she moved to Australia uh, when she was young and was what they call there a Jillaroo. Uh, here, I guess you would call that a cowgirl. Okay. She worked in rural uh, Australia, literally in the middle. Uh, she met my father and they had me and she rode the whole time. And uh, I would sit, I've seen photographs. I would sit on the front of the saddle because there was no babysitters in the middle yeah. of, of nowhere. <laughs> uh, I would sit on the front of the saddle. And then when I was too big, I got a Shetland pony and a really long lead because I complained. Um, <laughs> was it so, a good pony? <laughs> Jingle Bells, that was his name. <laughs> Jingle used, Bells, that's awesome. I used to fall off and he would stand over top of me. So I don't know whether he was protecting me or making sure I wouldn't get back on. <laughs> that's funny. That's awesome. Okay, so you have some good history there. So when you started actually riding and doing all of that kind of stuff besides like being there with your parents who were working and doing what they were doing, uh, did you, did you show, did you compete? Did you, what, or was it more of from a working experience or what kind of involvement? So in Australia, we don't have 4-H. So a lot of kids here will grow up, um, going to 4-H and yeah. uh, get an ex- equestrian experience through 4-H, but we don't have 4-H, but we have Pony Club. Pony Club is very popular in Australia. So okay. I have been, um, had been active in Pony Club since I was about six, um, and really started competing a lot at uh, pony club, larger pony club events when I was about 12, all the way through high school, 
Um, and then when I went away to college after high school, I sold my horses. And uh, when I was at college, I rode for a local stud farm. They had young horses and I would ride their horses. And then I moved over here and I live in an area of Virginia where there are more horses than people, it seems. So I have ready, ready availability to ride whenever I want. Oh, nice. Um, so do you have, I mean, we've talked about this previously. I know when we've done some write-ups and things like that, but do you have a heart horse? Like, do you have a horse that was just, you know, that relationship that you had that you're never going to forget in your entire life? Yeah, I, it was a gray horse. He was a gray quarter horse and his name was Model T and he was the first horse that I really started competing at, um, state championships for pony club. Yeah. Um, and his bloodlines actually trace back to a horse in America that was a bucking bronc. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he never bucked for me, but uh, I would say that would be my hot horse just because he was, you know, the first horse that I really started competing on. Oh, how old was he when you were when you were competing with him? Just curious. he and I were the same age. So when oh, I got really? him, I was that's even cooler. I was 12 and he was 12. Yeah. Nice. Model T, huh? Mm-hmm. Is that how he came to you or did you name him? No, he came to me with that name. Model T. That's pretty cool. Okay, so we know how involved uh, horses have been in your life um, from when you were a little kid to even now as it being uh, a, a huge part, obviously, of your career. Um, but what other experience do you have uh, with other livestock, other animals besides horses? So my grandparents um, have always had sheep. So um, I would tote around with my grandfather and learn about his wool and lamb production. Um, in Australia, I showed cattle on the uh, high school cattle team. Um, and now actually my husband and I have 17 cow calf pairs and we have three goats. Um, and we actually don't own any horses right now. We have cattle and goats. Oh, interesting. So are the goats, are they just to help manage the, the weeds and things That's like what that. Everybody asks. That's why we got them, but they are useless at doing that. <laughs> um, we have about 35 acres of pasture and so they don't eat any weeds and they really are just pets. <laughs> I was going to say, do they at least manage your pasture? Maybe they, <laughs> they have eat been down fantastic. with the cattle don't eat. Yeah, no, no. They've been fantastic for our two children who are six and four to, you know, get comfortable around livestock right. and they feed the goats all the time. And maybe ones that are more their size. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I know, uh, growing up in like 4-H and, and everything when I was a kid, it, it got started like when you're in the fourth grade and I started off doing sheep, but there were some, you know, kids my age as a 10 year old, that would start showing steers um, or if they had a breeding project, obviously they would have a cow or cow calf pair or something like that, or a heifer. Um, 
But I always just thought about because I've helped some kids right from the get go. I remember one, she was so small, like she was short for her age and she did stairs and he was he was not a nice steer. I'll tell you that much, too. Um, she did really great with them, but it's interesting seeing kind of that dynamic of such a small stature, like trying to lead around a creature that, you know, if they do any better, they know that they're, they're stronger than you are, but they don't know it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I am excited about getting my kids into 4-H. As I mentioned, we don't have that in Australia. So it is a really neat opportunity to expose younger children to different types of livestock. And yeah, so we're it excited is. About that. Yeah, it has a lot of and then like also like with speaking and things like that. It's a pretty, pretty neat organization. That'll be something fun that you'll get to share with your their kids that you uh, didn't get when you were growing up. But um, yes, it'll still be fun. It'll be good for them. Somehow I feel like I may get Rope, being roped into being the equine 4-H person. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no. Well, my husband is the uh, soccer coach for one of our children right now. So he's the so he's the soccer coach, and you get to be the the 4-H guru. I'm sure that's what's going to happen. <laughs> that's funny. So, what actually inspired you? So, I mean, you talked about wanting to travel. Um, and you, you've loved horses, but like what actually inspired you to pursue a higher education in equine nutrition and reproduction? And when did you realize that you wanted to work for horses as part of your career? I mean, I think any, every young girl that grows up around horses once has that dream of becoming a veterinarian, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I've just been really fortunate in my life to have some really good role models. I remember our local vet for our horses growing up. Um, he was always um, very hands-on and showed me what he was doing, explained everything on a level that I could understand. I wasn't like just a kid getting in the way. That's really great. Um, so that was probably my first exposure um, after, during high school, I interned at different vet hospitals. Um, and then I went away to college and had, again, different veterinarians said to me, um, you know, a, as a female, sometimes it can be really tough in, if you want to be a large animal veterinarian. Yeah. And in college, I had an excellent nutrition professor, uh, a large animal nutrition professor. And, that was when I really realized that maybe there are other ways to be involved in animals and horses without being a vet. Um, and I got really intrigued with nutrition and how much nutrition plays a role in the health and well-being of animals um, and how much you can affect an animal through nutrition. So I really um, pursued that more. And then the, how I got to come to America was through a Rotary scholarship. Oh, um, okay. So I won a scholarship through the community group Rotary, and it was quite a sizable scholarship to go overseas and study. It was called, at the time, it was called an ambassadorial scholarship. And I moved to America. Um, really, when you go to grad school, you go to uh, work in a program with a really good major professor. Um, and I, again, had um, 
influences, great influences in my life saying, you know, if you go to Virginia Tech, there is a expert there. His name is Dr. David Kronfeld. And he's at the time, he was the world's leading expert on um, equine nutrition. And so that's, that's how I ended up at Virginia Tech. Oh, nice. Uh, I didn't really have any idea where Virginia was or anything about Virginia Tech, but I yeah. came to work with Dr. Kronfeld. Oh, nice. Uh, so I, I think for anybody, you know, how do you get into something? A lot of times people that are really passionate, there's been someone in their life that that may have steered them in that direction. Yeah, definitely. There's always those mentors that kind of, especially with that veterinarian that you had um, when you were younger, more often than not, I feel like some adults can not purposefully, but see kids as getting in the way if they're, you know, trying to do their job and, you know, do what they're do, doing. Absolutely. But um, that was really great of him to actually just explain things to you and do it at a level that you would understand and not be like frustrated by it or anything. And um, I think the other thing that I took from him and something that I really try to do every time I talk with clients is, um, is to really make sure that I always speak on a level that people can understand. Yes. Whether I'm speaking with a veterinarian or a group of 4-H kids or, you know, just an average horse owner, I always want to make sure that I can take the highest level of science and explain it to them in a way that they can understand. Um, that's my goal every time I talk to somebody is to make sure that you understand and I'm never talking over somebody. Yes, that's such a good skill to have too, because not everybody can do that. And um, I personally, I feel like you do that very well, especially like when we did our intro to horse digestion earlier this year for the 4-H FFA and Pony Club kids, you know, because you've done talks all over the place with veterinarians and other horse owners. And so to be able to kind of speak on you know, all levels and kind of captivate is really, it's a really good skill to have. And I'm glad you have that skill. Thank you. <laughs> in working in your career, um, one thing I, I happened to notice right out of graduate school from Virginia Tech, did you go straight from there to working for PHN with Dr. Duran? I did. Yes. Okay. Um, I had seen Dr. Duran at several of the equine science meetings, and I knew that what he did was what I wanted to do. You know, I get to work with people. I get to um, deal with different scenarios every day. So I actually approached him and said, you know, do you have anything available? And within a few months after graduating, he contacted contacted me and said, well, would you be interested in working with performance horse nutrition? He had heard me speak at the meetings. I'm pretty personable, outgoing. Um, I went out there, had an interview and the rest is history. That is so cool. I actually, I did not know that. I happened to be on your LinkedIn last night and I was searching around like a good interviewer would do. Right. And I was like, oh, hey, I didn't know that you've been with uh, PHN this whole time. So that's pretty cool. Uh, yes. So what would you say is your absolute favorite experience that you have had so far um, in your career involving horses? Wow. You know, there, there has been a lot and I just on a small, like day to day level, I love getting 
feedback from people that have really helped their horse and they've been struggling for so long. And oh my gosh, your advice has really helped me with their heart horse. But on a larger scale, I would say in 2010, Dr. Duran and myself had the um, opportunity to be the Alltech nutritionists mm. uh, for the World Equestrian Games. Cool. And that was a really huge opportunity and it was eye-opening. So that's probably been the biggest um, kind of excitement that I've had. That is so cool. So where was the World Equestrian Games then? I mean, in 2010, that year, it was in, in Lexington, Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a pretty interesting experience. That's like a big deal. So especially what, how you probably hadn't been that far out of uh, school at that point, were you? 2010, I think I graduated in 2007. So I'd been working with the performance horse nutrition about three years. Yeah, that's pretty mm -hmm. cool to do. Not yeah. too far out of school. So, okay, on the other kind of side of the spectrum, not necessarily your least favorite experience, but I would really love to hear if you've had any interesting or weird experiences that you have had as an equine nutritionist. So it can be like... The, oh, the crazy story or what there's there's always something weird there's always something weird somebody wants to feed their horse and they're asking me about like what can because, you give me an example i would love to hear what you've oh heard. you know raw eggs or you know weird herbs there's all there's always something somebody has read on the internet that they want to try with their horse and do i know about it and you know i'm the worst i have to sometimes quickly google what on earth are they even talking about i've never heard of this <laughs> but i would say not the worst experience but some of the more challenging experiences for me is i hate the cold yeah and i do a lot of seminars in the cold and Sometimes I get so cold that I can't really think straight. Yeah. And I'll be in a barn and my teeth are chattering and my whole body is just freezing cold. Um, but yeah, that's probably, it's nothing really to do with the horses. It's more the circumstances. Just the, ex that I might yeah, be the experience in. itself. I were, I rode with a sales rep several years ago um, up in Wisconsin in the middle of winter. And oh. I, went yeah. there thinking I might don't go die. to Wisconsin I in the middle die. of winter <laughs> now <But> you know. <laughs> we were totally fine yeah it really wasn't that cold <laughs> so I'm curious and this is me not knowing a whole lot obviously about Australia or anything so how cold does it get there does that have anything to do with you just like growing up in warmer temperatures than it gets over here or well, I, in Australia, in some parts of Australia, it snows. In the southern part of Australia, it can be cold and damp and it okay. can snow and it snows in the mountains. There are yeah. fields. Yeah. But I did not grow up there. I grew up in Queensland. Mm -hmm. I spent most of my life in the midway down Queensland in a town called Rockhampton. Um, and it's very tropical. I always explain to people here that my seasons were hot and warm. That's well, you said like living in California, Texas, right? Exactly. So similar yeah. climates there. I didn't then own a winter coat before I moved to America. Really? Yeah, well, I that's why you're so um, 
<laughs> quote unquote yeah. warm blooded. <laughs> I do not like the cult. Oh, okay. Okay. So I know uh you and Dr. Durgan with Performance Horse Nutrition, I mean you you serve clients uh all across the world um right. in m- other countries besides just the United States. So what other countries do you get to go visit to help clients um, with their equine nutrition? Um, and I know obviously you've lived in Australia and everything, but like, what has been your favorite country to visit and why? Yeah, we obviously we do a lot of work in Australia and New Zealand. I'm sure when you chat with Dr. Duran, he'll talk more about that. Um but I had the luxury or the opportunity to work in China a couple of times. Oh, nice. That was fascinating. It's really fascinating to work in in different cultures and learn about different cultures, not only what what is different about the people, but also how they manage their horses. Um, there is a big there's a big equestrian community in China. So that's probably uh, one of the places that I thoroughly enjoyed going just because it's so different. So what type, uh, I'm just curious, what, uh, type of horsemanship happens in the area that you were at in China? Like, do they use them a lot more for work? I was in, I was in Beijing and Shanghai. And so bigger cities, it's definitely more English style riding, except they did have a lot of barrel racing, which was interesting. Did they really? Yes. Barrel racing, um, Arabians, but they will have like you'll go into a mall a a mall and you'll go up onto the fifth floor and there's a riding school in a mall really um yes it's just really crazy i can't um, fathom that that i mean i there's a lot not, of different like oh, crazy yeah. different things that in yeah. asia that yeah that we're not familiar with riding clubs there culturally that, different um, Riding clubs are more similar to belonging to a country club here, like a golf club. Oh, so they okay. have riding clubs, and that makes it more accessible for people. They don't have to own a horse, but they can go and then ride the horses. And they don't, you know, obviously land is at a premium and in a place so densely populated. So it allows uh, folks to be able to go and have access to horses. But I have not traveled to Mongolia yet, and that is on my bucket list of places to go because oh, yeah. there – then it's a whole different um, community of horse owners where the horses are really part of their culture and their livelihoods. And I, I'm just fascinated by that. And that is on my bucket list of places to go. That would be pre-COVID. I was trying to go, I was going to go with my husband and we were going to go. And I was even thinking about taking the kids, but then COVID hit. Right. Right. And kind of messed up some travel plans. Well, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to jot this down right now, because when you do get to go, I'm going to, I'm going to expect an interview with you when you get back to share the experiences of like what you found with the Mongolians and the horses and their, yeah, that is so intriguing to me. It's amazing. I know that you briefly touched on a few people you were talking about that kind of inspired you to pursue a career, um, with horses, But I'm wondering if you had to pick one person in your life within the industry who has had the greatest impact on you and tell me, tell me a little bit more about them and why, 
they have um I would have to say there's much two. To you. There's got to be two. There's okay. two and the first was Dr. Gordon Dryden who was my nutrition professor in in undergraduate in Australia back at the University of Queensland. Okay. And he was the one who put me on this path to nutrition and that it opened so many doors and number two has got to be Dr. Duran. I mean, I was pretty much a kid when I first started working for him and you graduate you have a PhD and you still really know nothing about the real world. You know yeah. a lot about your little area of interest that you did all your right. research. But when you go into industry, I mean, there's so much that you don't know and your horse owners don't care. They want an answer for everything. So yeah. I would say as far as mentorship and teaching me the most, it's got to be Dr. Duran. That is so cool. Dr. Duran, you better listen to this episode. (laughs) That's pretty neat. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about like your younger self, like things that you would tell your younger self. It's, it's so interesting when you think 10, 15 years beyond, you know, graduating from high school or college and just you're in your little bubble and your world seems so big at the time. And then as you get older, it's always so interesting, especially like I just know when we've like ran into people who, you know, they know somebody else that they live states like across the country from you, or maybe you run into somebody that like you're visiting in Hawaii or Mexico or something like that. And they know somebody from like where you grew up and everything. And it's just like, I feel like the older you get, the smaller the world becomes. The smaller the world gets. There are yeah. so many connections. Absolutely. It's really funny when I will uh, talk to a client on the phone and the world is so small now with the internet and social yeah. media. And especially when it comes to breeding horses, I mean, people are shipping semen all around the world. And so I recently actually was talking to a lady in Vermont who breeds Morgan horses. And she sent one of the stallions that she had used predominantly and loved the stallion actually is in Australia with a lady that I grew up taking riding lessons with. Really? That's, That's a small crazy. World. It is a small world. That is world. a small world yes. right there. Yeah. And that is not the first time that it's happened. That happens quite frequently that someone that I am randomly talking to through a nutrition consult for one of my clients yeah. knows somebody from Australia or from, you know, graduate school. So that is a very important lesson to all young people. Never burn your bridges because you just never know who's going to walk over them. Right. That that's pretty interesting. I think that's always that's one of my favorite feelings. One of my favorite experiences is when I'm talking to someone and I find something out like that. And I feel like I have like an immediate connection with them because Mm -hmm. of it. And it's such a great feeling. Yeah. Okay, so I have this kind of goes a bit off topic just from horses, just because I think it's a fun question. And I'm really curious to know what you would choose. So aside from the obvious uh, necessities, what is the one thing in your life that you wouldn't be able to go a day without? Oh, gosh. I know it's a thinker. 
That is a really hard one. Is it a hard one? I'm it just thinking. It is, because I'm not addicted to coffee or anything like that. I actually hate coffee. I could easily go without my phone and my computer. Um, you know, I know. I feel like a lot of. I do not like being stuck inside. I do not like being stuck inside. So um, I love to be outdoors. So I think I, c- I just can't go without fresh air. Fresh air. Getting outside. Yeah. Yeah. So you're an outdoorsy person. What are oh, some yeah. of your what are some of your favorite things to do out? Oh, I'm an avid gardener. I love to garden. We my husband and I moved in. We built a new home last September and there was just red mud all around it. So COVID has uh has had its blessings. You, you know, have had traveling. a lot of time to work on projects. I have had a lot of time <laughs> to work on projects. So I have established a huge garden. We have a huge vegetable garden. I mean I said we have the 35 acres and we have cows, so we're constantly working. You're busy. There. Yeah. Yeah. We're just never it's never ending. There's always something. So do you can then if you have a large oh, garden? Oh yes. You do? Yes. We can tomatoes. I, I call them tomatoes. You yeah. might call them tomatoes. Tomato, tomato, tomato. It's all the same. <laughs> and my husband, Robert, loves to grow hot peppers. And so we smoke jalapenos and make chipotles. And I mean, you name it, we do it. We also this year, um, this is something that I'm actually really quite proud of. So a lot of um, local food banks this year have been really, really struggling to keep up with demand. Yeah. And our local food bank always says, if you have a green thumb and you like to grow vegetables, to grow an extra row. And so a lot of local you know, home gardeners will grow a few extra plants so that they can donate to the food That's bank. That's a good idea. Ours takes fresh produce. Um this year, our little home garden, we have donated over 600 pounds of fresh produce to the food bank. And I'm quite proud of that. So That's really great. And honestly, I never thought about that because we have... I, I would not say that I have a green thumb. I'm great at growing zucchini plants, but, um, you know, it's also very hard to kill zucchinis. So, yes, uh, but I, I, it always seems like I have more than I can keep up with and I haven't learned how to can yet, but that is one of my bucket list things to do. And so that is actually a really great idea. I never would have thought of that. And maybe next year, if I have a plethora of veggies from the garden that I can't keep up with, I will do that. I do. It is. It's now a lot of food banks won't take fresh produce. They just don't have the storage for it. Yeah. But find out if yours does, because it is a really great way to um, get rid of surplus vegetables and help the community. That is. That's so cool. I'm glad you do that. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. So here's another, it's another fun question, but it's going back to, uh, the horse world. What is your favorite equine based movie? Oh, Farlap for sure. That's what, an easy one. What movie? It's called Farlap. P-H-A-R-L-A-P. Farlap was a famous Australian racehorse. That oh. one and Man from Snowy River. Oh, I was oh, going to say, yeah. <laughs> that's my favorite one is the man from Snowy River. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ever, ever since I was a kid, I've always loved that, especially when he's riding Danny. the horse down the mountain, slow-mo. Oh, yeah. You know what? That's like the most epic movie scene, I feel like, from any movie. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's pretty. And of course, it's, you know, from your part of the world, too. So that's probably also kind of fun to have a movie that's 
more yes. connected to you in that way. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. pretty neat. Okay, so I think I have one more question that I want to ask you um, for the interview today. And what what do you wish that you had known 10 years ago? Back, you know, we were talking about telling things to our younger self 10 years ago. What, what do you wish you would have known that you know now? Oh, wow. I don't know. That's a hard one. It's a hard one. I don't have an answer. I can answer you my favorite movie in a second. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I try to think about... I have no idea. (laughs) Well, you know, I will say, okay, so earlier you were talking about how, you know, talking to any of the the younger people listening uh, to not burn their bridges... Yes. Is that yes. something, I mean, at, at that time in your life, not that you, you did or didn't, but is that something that you would have thought of at that age? Like when you were maybe That is college? something that I have really tried to um, keep the whole way along. I, I kind of learned that very early on because you just, you just never know who, um, who is going to help you along the way. And right. um, it's usually a person that may always just sit in the background, may be the most helpful to you. Um, so yeah, I don't really know what I would tell myself. Well, I mean, and I feel like, I feel like that's actually, I don't know, personally, I feel like that's good advice because the, when you think about it, you know, people talk about the importance of higher education and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, which, you know, is important, but Personally, what I found, it seems like more people are interested in just seeing that you actually dedicated time and completed something like showed almost like follow through. Sure. Um, And then, I mean, personally, I think the opportunities that I have had in my life and the places that they have taken me has been from networking and Mm -hmm. knowing somebody important who has been able to pave a path for you. And so I don't know if you can't think of anything, I think that's a pretty good thing personally. Yeah. So, well, this has been a very fun conversation. I'm really glad that we did this and I'm excited to be able to do more conversations like this, you know, regarding like nutrition and other fun, fun, interesting aspects of, uh, the agricultural world with uh, horses and you know maybe chickens, maybe goats. Well, uh, well, you know me; I get very excited, and I can talk all day. Whenever we do our, our webinars, you're always the one that is telling me, you know, we have to keep to a time limit. We, we got to cut our time, time off. Limit. I know, and everybody so, else is. See, it's me, the moderator. So Moderator's never any fun because the people asking questions are like, "We want more questions. We want more answers." Exactly. I'm like, I know, I know. I want to give you more answers too. So I don't know. This is this is fun. This is going to be a fun journey for us to explore. Um, the coming months as we do more of these podcast episodes. So anyway, it's been a great talk. And until next time, we will see you on the next episode, Dr. Cubit. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time. Keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.